Well, once every six or seven years or so, New Year's Day falls on a Sunday. And I think every pastor is probably curious to see what his congregation is going to be like on that Sunday morning. Not maybe so much because of the, the potential late night reveling, although I imagine there's some of that among you, and there probably should be. Um, but also because of just the emotional and physical toll I think that the holidays take on people. And by the time New Year's morning rolls around, everybody's just kind of shut down. And so I'm glad to see that you're here this morning to not be totally shut down despite what New Year's might do to you. But Happy New Year's to you anyway. And I'm glad to see you. This morning I thought it might be good for us to begin a new year by remembering what I think is maybe one of the most neglected, maybe even misunderstood elements of the Christian life and even particular of Christian worship. And it's really also one of the most mysterious and powerful elements of the Christian life and of our worship together as we gather here in the theater. So here in the book of Numbers, way back in the Old Testament, you can see on page 6, a short passage there for you. Here in the book of Numbers, the people of Israel are just about one year or so removed from their exodus from Egypt as the Lord, through Moses, delivered them out of their bondage there in Egypt. And they have, over the course of this year, received the Ten Commandments along with a whole host of details about how to live in the presence of the one true God. And lest we begin to think at this point in reading Scripture that God is a taskmaster, He gives to His people a gift. He gives to them a blessing, a benediction. Literally, He gives to them a good word. And that's what we have here in Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that as we together begin a new year, that You would indeed bless us. We pray that you would, as we gather here this morning, bless us with your spirit. Give us understanding of your word. Persuade our hearts of it and make use uh, even of my words as I speak so that we would understand you and believe you and follow you as you've called us to do. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I don't usually begin by reading something to you, but this morning this is very appropriate. I want to read to you a, it's a very short account of a ship, a passenger ship that was traveling through the Pacific Ocean just over a century ago. And I don't know for sure that this is actually historically true. It sounds almost like a, like a fisherman's tale. Maybe it is that, but it's a good story. So I want to read this to you because it's very fitting to where we are on New Year's Day. The passenger steamer S.S. Waramu was quietly knifing its way through the waters of the mid-Pacific Ocean on its way from Vancouver to Australia. The navigator had just finished working out a star fix and brought the master, Captain John Phillips, the result. 
the Waramu's position, GPS position, we would call it, was latitude zero degrees by 31 minutes north and longitude 179 degrees by 30 minutes west. The date was 30 December 1899. Do you know what this means? First mate Peyton broke in. We're only a few miles from the intersection of the equator and the international date line. Captain Phillips was just prankish enough to take full advantage of the opportunity for achieving the navigational freak of a lifetime. He called his navigators to the bridge to check and double-check the ship's position. He changed course slightly so as to bear directly on his mark. Then he adjusted the engine speed. The calm weather and clear night worked in his favor. At midnight, the Waramu lay on the equator at exactly the point where it crossed the international dateline. The consequences of this bizarre position were many. The forward part of the ship was in the southern hemisphere and the middle of summer. The stern was in the northern hemisphere and in the middle of winter. The date in the aft part of the ship was 30 December 1899, and the date in the forward part of the ship was 1 January 1900. This ship was therefore not only in two different days, two different months, two different seasons, and two different years, but also in two different centuries, all at the same time. Imagine that. They say that you can't be in two places at once. But it seems that the captain of the ship very cleverly overcame that myth and put his ship in more than one place at one time. This captain was remarkable in his thinking and and his ability to go and very carefully navigate to the one spot where this could happen. Not only were they in all four hemispheres of the earth at one time, but they were in more than one season of the year in, at, one, at one time, and they were even in more than one time at one time. It's an astonishing orientation. Just, they were just in the right place at the right time. And presumably they were in the perfect position for receiving all that this world has to offer, so to speak, you might say, metaphorically. Now, for many, the beginning of a new year is just such a roll of the dice. It's a chance, once again, to find that elusive, perfect position to reorient ourselves in just such a way to begin to do the things that we're supposed to do, to begin to know the things that we're supposed to know, to begin to be the people that we're supposed to be. And in the scramble to orient ourselves and our lives, just so we forget that the gospel that God has given us, has already accomplished that very thing for us. God has given His people a gift. He's put His people in exactly the right place, in exactly the right orientation, at exactly the right time, by giving them a blessing, a benediction, a good word. The book of Numbers starts out with an orientation of sorts. God has called His people out of Egypt, out of their bondage to slavery. And He has, at this point, after about a year since the Exodus, begun to call through Moses for a census of all the fighting men of Israel. 
And so Moses counts the fighting men of Israel. And with over 600,000 fighting men now listed out to the benefit of the people, they arrange the camp of Israel. And imagine, this is a couple of million people. They arrange the camp of Israel around the tabernacle just so. Three tribes of the nation are on the north of the tabernacle and three tribes are on the south. Three tribes are on the east of the tabernacle and three tribes are on the west. They are oriented just so. And the Levites, one of the tribes, have been set apart to serve directly in God's presence. And now, being perfectly positioned, they're ready to move. But before they do... The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and tell them, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. And from that moment, from that moment in history, the benediction has been a profound and powerful last word to God's people whenever they gather together for worship. And it was the profound and powerful last word to God's people as they gathered for temple worship in ancient days, and it makes very suitably a first word for God's people in a new year. Now, the benediction in our worship service, you have to understand, as we get to it at the end, every Sunday morning as we get to it at the end, it is not me or any pastor telling you to go and have a good week. And it's not even the subtle cue that we give to you to gather your things and begin to get ready to leave the theater. It's, it's none of those things. It is, rather, the Lord himself bestowing upon you his commitment to bless you with all that belongs to him. It communicates a number of different things. One of those is God's intended goodness to his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. Now, there are many benedictions in Scripture. You find a a number of them as you read through the New Testament at the end of letters and such and other places. In the Old Testament, too, you find a number of different benedictions, words that are intended to convey goodness to God's people. But it's really at the very beginning of Scripture that you find the idea of a benediction coming forth. In Genesis chapter 1, in the creation account, it's where you see the origin of it. There you see God creating different elements of the world on each of the creation days. And the narrator begins to sound repetitive. On each day, God creates a different element of the world. And the narrator tells us, And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. Each time, and God saw that it was good. It's the narrator's way, I think, of telling us that God was enjoying what he was doing. He was delighting in all the goodness of the creation that he was, by the power of his word, calling forth into existence. He was delighting in all of its goodness. But on the sixth day, we find something a little bit different. On the sixth day, God created the man and the woman, after his own image and placed them there in the creation as his image to lead all that's there. And the narrator takes a slightly different course. The narrator then says, and God 
blessed them. And God blessed them to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. In other words, I mean, he saw how good it was, but that was a foregone conclusion by this point. And God, at this point, blessed them to do these things. He was extending to them all of the enjoyable delight of his creation for their good. He was giving to them all that belongs to him. Why? Because they were to him family. They were his very image. They were of all the creation, the only part of the creation that bore his image, that stood for him as representatives in the creation. They were his family. And so we come to find that benediction, the blessing that it brings, is very much a family matter. It's a matter we find between fathers and sons. Soon in Genesis, we begin to see how that unfolds from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We see that it's a, a thing that comes from a father to a son. It comes from the bigger, the stronger, the older, and the greater one to the smaller, the weaker, the younger, the lesser one. It's, it's a good thing that comes from on high, as it were. And it's not just well-wishing, although it was that. It was a father in his old age wishing good, wishing well upon his, his sons and his daughters and blessing them so that their lives would be a good blessing after his departure in death. But it's not just his well-wishing, as though he were saying to them, be warm and well-fed and good luck. It was more than that. It was him extending to them the real and tangible material benefits of his own possessions. He would actually convey upon them his own livelihood so that they then could carry on with all the good that God had given to him. And so, he would bless and keep them as it were, as their lives continued. And God doesn't just wish you well either. He actually achieves it for you. One of the great examples of such a blessing happening in the Old Testament is the blessing that that took place place in the family drama of Isaac and Rebekah and their sons Jacob and Esau, one of the most dramatic and in many ways dysfunctional family situations that the Bible graciously records for us. You may know the story, the twins, Jacob and Esau, were born together, but Esau was born first. Technically, of course, they were twins. They were the same age, but Esau was born first, and so Esau was the older brother. And in the day of of their birth, the law of primogeniture said that the, the oldest, the, pri- the prime, the primary, the firstborn, was the one who would receive the, the primary benefit of the father's blessing at the father's death. And so technically Esau was the one to receive that. However, the Lord had told Rebekah, the boy's mother, that the, the older one will serve the younger one. It will be the younger one who receives the greater blessing. And so, as Isaac grew old, Rebekah began to scheme to figure out how am I going to make this happen to get the younger one to receive the father's blessing. And so Isaac was nearly blind. Maybe you know the story. And he called his older son Esau to go and hunt for him. Esau was a, a manly, hairy hunter type and probably smelled the part. And so he went out and hunted for his father to come back and bring him a meal 
so that his father might bless him. And in stepped Rebekah with, with Jacob and inserted Jacob into his place to deceive his father to receive a verbal blessing at least. And so they deceived Isaac. And because of it, Jacob had to flee. He knew that he wasn't actually really going to receive what his father had to give because his father was going to find out. Esau was soon going to return to the, from the field and, and his, his disguise would be blown and, and Isaac would know what Jacob had done. And so, so Jacob had to flee. Why would he do this? Why, why the messy drama of this family situation? Because the sons were needy of their father's blessing. Jacob, the younger brother, had surely been, been disregarded in so many ways by his father as they grew up and as they lived as sons in the household. And he longed for his father's blessing. And here his mother gave him an opportunity just one time to hear his father say, my blessings are for you. And so he, he heard it, but then he had to flee. But the the greater blessing is, is, is more than just the livestock that he might have received and the possessions that his father might have bestowed upon him. And one way that you see that is because during Rebekah's scheming with Jacob, Jacob actually expresses his fear and says, you know, I'm, I'm kind of concerned, I'm afraid here. If I'm deceiving my father and what if he figures it out? He'll give me a curse instead of a blessing. And Rebekah, his mother, carelessly and really rashly, actually says to Jacob, Son, don't worry. Let your curse fall on me. I don't know that she knew what she was talking about in doing that, but, but some commentators say that the true goodness of God's blessing is reflected much later on in that Jesus himself would say, Don't fear. Let your curse fall on me. And he knew what he was talking about. He knew that the curse would fall on him. Rebecca didn't know that, and no curse fell on her for what she did. But the greater good of God's blessing is that the curse falls on the Son of God instead of on us. And this is what a benediction communicates to us. God intends to be good to his people. But his goodness is not just generic, of course. It's personal as well, because a benediction also communicates God's established presence with us. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The the face of God indicates the presence of God. If if someone's face is, is with you, it's shining upon you, then that one is with you. They're present with you. Some say that the greatest promise in the Bible is one that occurs several times throughout the Old Testament and becomes fulfilled in the life of Jesus in the New. And that is God saying to His people, I will live with you and I will walk with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. We will be together because I will be present with you. And throughout the Bible, the the promised presence of God is a primary and even natural theme that you see. It's a, it's a desire of every person because we're created in His image. We desire to have God's presence with us without shame, but we frustrate ourselves with our vain efforts to establish it ourselves. Constantly we do this. You know, the story of mankind, I've said this many times before, the story of mankind unfolds in three phases in Scripture. 
There's the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. There's the fall in Genesis 3. And the rest of Scripture is the story of redemption. The rest of Scripture is the, the story of how God is at work to redeem His people. In the creation, God put man into the garden. In the fall, God put man out of the garden. And in redemption, we see God's work to regain the garden for man. But we also see this. We see man's constant vain efforts to get back into the garden on his own. And that's exactly what you and I are doing all the time. We all have one desire in common. To get back into the garden. To get back into God's presence without any shame. To feel the fulfillment that only Adam and Eve surely must have felt in their days of peace with God in the garden. We all long to be back in His presence in that way. And so we take every opportunity we can take to aim for the perfect position, to to regain that elusive orientation that will, in some way, best align our lives to receive whatever blessing and good this world has to offer. But it's always in vain, isn't it? You know, you, you bust your chops to finish first in your class, in your education, and then the employers that you had hoped to gain attention from have no interest in you despite that. Or you finally get married and you think, you know, now finally my life has begun. I'm married. I can start a family. And then you discover that your spouse has serious needs in the depths of his or her heart that you can't possibly meet. Or you finally buy a new house. And you think, I've made it and now my family has the American dream and and things will begin to fall into place for us only to discover that the bills for maintenance in the house can just drain you and draw you down. All that we do, everything we do, is an effort to get back into the garden. And it's all in vain, isn't it? And then to make matters worse, if you take a look at this so-called blessing here, you recognize this promise should bring fear to the bravest Hebrew who knows anything about what God is talking about here. The Lord make His face shine upon you. Now, Moses would have heard that and thought, oh crud, how is that a blessing? That's not a blessing, that's a fear. Why fear? Well, remember the context. You know, they've been spending 13 months or so at this point in the wilderness and Moses was at this point wearing constantly a veil over his face because he'd been in the presence of God himself. And when he came back to the people the first time in Exodus 34, his face was shining, his, his countenance, his, his physical appearance was changed. And it was overwhelming to the people. They couldn't take it. It was frightening to them. They were terrified. And they said, Moses, you've got to cover yourself. You can speak to us with your voice, but don't show us that face. We can't see it. It was not Moses' face, of course, they needed to fear. Moses knew that. A chapter earlier, Moses had made a bold request of God. Let me see your glory. And every church-going person at least knows that story. What did God say? You can't see my face, Moses. No one can see my face and live. I'll show you my back. 
as it were, but you can't see my face and live. And now, here's this blessing. How? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. How is this to be a blessing? It's because of the second part. And be gracious to you. This would be amazing grace. Moses would have said, oh yeah, I mean, it's going to require some grace. For, for God's face to shine us on us, it's going to require some grace. This is really a foreshadowing of full and complete redemption. Because only in the fullness of complete redemption in Christ can God's face possibly shine on you. Face to face with God in His presence. That's something that has not happened since the Garden of Eden. And it's something that we still feel eludes us. <clears throat> You know, on a New Year's Day often, we'll, we'll, we just kind of have the feeling and the, and the sense inside of if only we could be in the presence of the one who can bless us. And if we can't be in his presence, then we could at least be in the places where he was present. This past summer, I, I became aware of a trip that I'd been waiting for for some years to come back around Covenant Seminary, where I attended seminary. Periodically, we'll send a study tour led by a couple of professors to Israel to go through the Holy Lands, led by a, a New Testament archaeologist and an Old Testament scholar to study the very, various places of the, the Bible lands. And they had planned a trip for this January. And two weeks from now, Mary and I will be going on that trip with these two professors and with this other group of 35 folks to go and study the biblical sites in the Holy Land, and this is an interesting year to do that, I imagine, with all that's going on politically around the world, and even just recently in relationships between the United States and Israel, and all the banter that's going back and forth, not to mention the fact that the presidential inauguration day will take place while we're there. It'll be an interesting time. But we've signed up for this trip, and two weeks from today... Two weeks from today, Mary and I will, with this group, walk the Palm Sunday road from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was betrayed. And there, I imagine, we'll have some sense of a worship service together on that Sunday morning. And a friend of Mary's, who was excited to hear that we were going, who's been a number of times on a different tour group, explained how, how her tour guide explained when they were approaching the Temple Mount in Jerusalem years ago, that Neil Armstrong, the famed astronaut, the first man to set foot on the moon, was in the tour group. And as they approached the Temple Mount to the steps that were there, the tour guide explained that of all the places in Jerusalem, it's hard to tell exactly where Jesus might have been, what stones he might have stepped on, because things have changed since then. But here at the Temple Mount, at these particular steps leading up the mount, they've been there for thousands of years, and we are sure that, that these are steps that Jesus must have used to step up onto this place. And Neil Armstrong, the tour guide said, knelt down and kissed the steps there and explained that that moment was to him more meaningful than setting foot on the moon. Now I can understand, I can, I can understand the sentiment. You know, somehow there's a part of me that expects to be born again all over again just by stepping on that step. 
as though I were somehow more acutely and intensely in the presence of God in that place than in anywhere else. But the thing about this blessing, the thing about a benediction from the Lord is this. The face of God is no less present right here, right now, in this theater than on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Even as we come to these tables again, you know, we we often point this kind of thing out as we come to the Lord's table together. It's because God calls us into His presence. Why? Because He's already there. By His Spirit, He is as much here as He is in Jerusalem or anywhere else. He is present with His people as mysterious and profound as it might be for us, as beyond our grasp to understand the concept of His presence with us, yet He is here. And so a benediction communicates not just God's intended goodness, but His established presence with us. But there's one other thing, though, that without which the gospel would be incomplete, and that is it shows to us God's eternal acceptance as well. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. The benediction declares God's eternal acceptance of all whose faith is in Christ. The gesture here in this verse 26 is pretty obvious, I think. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you, or the Lord turn His face toward you, your Bible translation might say. What's the meaning of that? Well, it's acceptance. I mean, you know it. If a, if a little daughter comes into her father's work room, his study, and interrupts him and calls out while he's busy working, Daddy, she knows that if he turns his face towards her, if he lifts his countenance upon her, then he has, she has him. He, he has accepted her into his presence. It's obvious what this gesture means. It's, it's really actually the irony that's harder for us to take. Because for whom is this blessing intended? Is it intended for sweet little daughters who interrupt their daddies in the midst of their work? Well, yeah, it is. But more than that, who were these people upon whom God was placing his name? Nineteen days later in the book of Numbers, it would become very clear just who they were. They were whining, complaining, ungrateful rebels. A few chapters later, in Numbers 11, they would complain about the food they had to eat. In Numbers 14, they refused to enter the promised land that God had sworn to give to them. In chapter 16, they conspired against Moses, God's appointed leader. In chapter 20, they argued about water. In 21, they griped about their living conditions. But, you know, they weren't the first ones to do these sorts of things. I mean, this had been going on for some centuries at this point, Abraham. Abraham gave away his wife twice in order to save his own hide. Jacob, we already saw, deceived his father and stole from his brother. Judah discarded his deceased son's wife, his daughter-in-law, and even conceived a child with her thinking that she was a prostitute. 
Moses was a coward, not believing what God had said to him about going into Egypt to redeem God's people. Samson, the judge, was a temper tantrum always waiting to happen. And King David, the man after God's own heart, I mean, we know what David did. He stole another man's wife, and then he had the man killed to get away with it. And that's just the Old Testament. There is, of course, Peter, who denied Jesus three times, despite all of his bravado, and Thomas, who doubted Jesus and demanded that he show himself physically to him, and Paul, who murdered the church in order to please the Lord. These are the ones. You see, the irony is that the Bible is full of failed, would-be spiritual heroes who just couldn't get their position just right. They just couldn't seem to orient themselves in such a way as to receive all the good blessings the world might have to offer. Would-be spiritual heroes who on their own amounted to nothing. This is God's good word for them. And, you know, we haven't made a lot of progress since their day, have we? Even though we live in what we call a progressive era, we measure ourselves with progress technologically and materially and socially and intellectually, and yet spiritually we've just not made a whole lot of progress, have we? Because in the one thing that counts, we're no different than all of these failed would-be spiritual heroes of the Bible. We think that our progress will put us back in the garden. That's what we use our progress for, is to try to, try to put ourselves back in the garden Content before God without shame, but it never, it never works. It always, always fails. And so this benediction is for us. This benediction is for those who need the gospel. I have to admit to you, as a new year begins, as a pastor, I have to say, I'm a crummy Christian. I mean, I am. I don't pray in the ways that I ought or with the frequency that I ought. I don't read scripture in the ways that I ought or with the frequency that I ought to do, and the list goes on and on. I'm a crummy Christian. I'm a crummier Christian than you are. And yet, God's amazing grace confronts me in verse 27, where he gives the purpose of a benediction. What does he say? So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them the maker of all things, who spread the stars and who created every living thing, has declared a good word for his people. And what does that good word communicate? It communicates his intended goodness for you. It communicates to you his established presence that is sure as it could possibly be. And it communicates to you his eternal acceptance His name is on you by faith in Jesus. So lest you think that God is a taskmaster, He gives you a good word. He gives you a blessing. He places His name on you so that you might live for Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.